Hello and welcome to Glasgow City Heritage Trust podcast, If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a new series about the relationships, stories and shared memories that exist between Glasgow's historic buildings and people. Hello everyone, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. In this episode, we'll be talking about Scottish queer history and places, and how queer stories are researched and interpreted. Today, LGBT plus people in Scotland can marry, adopt children and pursue wonderful careers. Political leaders and public figures openly identify as gay or bisexual. And Scotland recently topped a European League table measuring legal protections offered to LGBT plus people. But this is all very recent, as for many years, Scotland was actually behind England and Wales in recognising sexual diversity. Instead, gay and bisexual men and women were starved of acceptance and recognition and subjected to intense homophobia. Scotland did not decriminalise gay sex between consenting men until 1980. As to quote from James Adair, OBE, a former procurator fiscal in Glasgow, open homosexuality would elicit public disgust promote male prostitution, and enable perverts to practice sinning for the sake of sinning. Now, this is a revealing point of view as Adair, who lived in Pollock Shields and was commissioner from the Presbytery of Glasgow and associated with the National Vigilance Association of Scotland, was a minority voice amongst the 11 men and women who sat on the committee chaired by Sir John Wolfenden, which produced the Wolfenden Report in 1957, which eventually led to the Sexual Offences Act in 1967, which changed the law in England and Wales so that homosexual behaviour between consenting adults and private should no longer be considered a criminal offence. So at the same time, there were no laws against gay women and lesbians were basically invisible, untouched by the law, but victims of the same stigma and discrimination. So looking back, it is important to appreciate that the path to an enlightened Scotland was filled with many obstacles. The concept of queerness as discussed in relation to public space versus private space, in a nutshell, was basically, I don't mind what you do in your own home, but don't do it in public. So this is the reason why queer spaces, bars, pubs, and bookshops have such an important role in queer history. But how can we research and collect queer stories and make them relevant again? And what sort of traces past queer people left behind? Today, we have a great guest to explore these topics and many more. Dr. Jeff Meek is a lecturer in economic and social history at Glasgow University. His area of expertise is LGBT plus history with a focus on gay and bisexual men, religion, medicine, and the law from 1885 to 1980. Sir Jeff has also been researching male prostitution in Edinburgh and Glasgow for his forthcoming book, Queer Trades, Society and the Law, Male Prostitution in Interwar Scotland. He is also involved in mapping queer spaces in historical Scotland, and you can check out his work for yourself at www.queerscotland.com. So on this fascinating website, you can find historical maps of queer places and spaces in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Dundee, and across the wider central belt. The purpose of these interactive maps is to be able to browse the venues and spaces that have attracted non-heterosexual Glaswegians over the past 150 years. So having done talks for this for Glasgow Stories Open Day Festival, last year, Jeff wrote an interesting article for Glasgow Live called Meet Me at the Knob. And this was about the history of Glasgow's gay scene, but in particular about the notorious White Hats, a gang of male prostitutes who were based on the Brumulo in the 1920s. So in the article, Jeff says that the names of the White Hats used are interesting because they are mostly variety hall artists who performed at the Empire, Panopticon, and the Pavilion. So in the early 20th century, queer people could discreetly socialize at venues such as the Theatre Royal, the Citizens, the Central Hotel, and Green's Playhouse on Renfield Street, as well as in cafes along the Brumilaw. By the 1960s, Glasgow's gay community included the Cocktail Bar in the Royal, along with Guys with the Strand on Hope Street. But by the 1970s, you were getting the Scottish Minorities Group opening the Glasgow Gay Centre at 534 Sockey Hall Street, which was the first such publicly named centre in the UK. And there were three further places for Glasgow's lesbian, gay and um, transsexual community, including the Waterloo and Waterloo Street, the Duke of Wellington, which was just next door in Argyll Street, and Vintners on Clyde Street. 
But it was only in the 1980s and 90s onwards that more openly gay mixed bars such as Bennett's, now AXM, on um, Glassford Street, Club X and Royal Exchange Square, Delmonica's on Virginia Street and Sadie Frost's beneath Queen Street Station started to appear. However, a lot of this is transitory and prone to disappear as the city regenerates. For instance, both Sadie Frost and Glasgow's Gay Centre, which was later based on Dixon Street, have both recently been demolished um, for redevelopment. And with that, the knowledge of these key spaces for one of Glasgow's communities also becomes ephemeral. So it's these suppressed or marginalised stories which Jeff is trying to reveal. Therefore, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Uh, thanks very much, Neil. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so first off, um, what, what can you tell me about the Queer Scotland website? How, how did it start? Um, well, really, it was it was a case of historical nosiness. Um, I had just finished my PhD, and it was a way of keeping myself occupied uh, while I looked for jobs, basically. Um, <laughs> and I was fascinated by the the stories that were coming out from the research that, that weren't necessarily going to be central to my uh, PhD. And when you when you enter academia, you're never entirely sure if you're going to revisit these things again. So it can drag you off in various directions. Um, and I was frustrated at that point that there didn't seem to be much information out there on LGBT plus history um, in Scotland. So the, the website was a way of um, communicating uh, with audiences uh, across the web. And I was trying to capture particular moments in time, particular spaces um, that, that you know, popped out in my research. Uh, whether that was through, you know, the interviews I did with gay and bisexual men who lived in Scotland in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, or through the archival research uh, I did uh, in terms of going to Edinburgh and looking at um, the archives there. And I felt I wanted to share that. Uh, and 10, 15 years ago, there was so little information out there about LGBT history in Glasgow and in Scotland. Uh, to be fair, things haven't radically changed in that regard. Um, but I thought at the time, the information was much too valuable, uh, important, um, interesting uh, to sit on a file on my computer gathering uh, digital dust. So that's how it really came about. <laughs> No, I have to say it's, it's been immensely enjoyable. It's something that kind of as I'm, I'm as I'm getting older, I'm kind of I've become much more interested in because it's about traces of people's lives and how they kind of disappear over time. And so, yeah, been been uh, reading of late things like Gay New York. Um, do you know this one, George George Chauncey, and uh, the Gay Metropolis, Charles Kaiser? All these kind of books. I'm sort of gradually sort of developing a little kind of archive of them in, in my library. And it's because they do tell these stories. So it's, it's really interesting to, 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 to realize that there were those stories here too, and it's you that's beginning to tease them out. So, okay, next, next question. On, on the website, there are all these kind of interactive maps that you put together of Scotland's queer history spaces and places. So how, how did you start collecting that information to populate these maps and are they still a work in progress and do, do you still get submissions for them? Yeah, I mean, again, this goes back to when I was doing my research um, uh, for my PhD and then latterly um, for the book Queer Voices. Um, and I was trying to find a way to help me in my research of kind of plotting, of noting, of mapping all the places that sprang out of, of the research. Um, uh, whether it was particular towns, whether it was particular spots in particular towns, whether it was particular buildings. Um, and I thought the best way of doing that was to actually place them on a map. Um, and so I started placing them on Google Maps just as a way um, of seeing uh, where particular venues, where particular cruising areas, mm -hmm. uh, where particular hotspots for arrests were over that kind of period, especially the first half of that period, 1885 um, into the 1950s. Right. So it started with started with Glasgow and Edinburgh, um, just one or two plots at a time. Uh, but before long, it was running into, into hundreds of different places. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to be honest, it was beginning to take on a, a kind of life of its own. Um, so I thought I'd better <laughs> do something with this rather than just let it, uh, let it sit. Um, so what started is me... Um, plotting where 
sodomy cases were, and that was the first thing I did mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it grew into a, a map of places and spaces that seemed to me to be important, um, not just in LGBT history, but as a way of kind of representing LGBT experiences um, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so then from kind of criminal cases, it moved into um, you know venues and hostelries um, rather than just locations of, of offences or cruising areas. Uh, and the men I spoke to when I was doing my PhD research and research for, for queer voices were offering up this variety of places and spaces, uh, places that I hadn't even considered um, as being important uh, to LGBT experience, uh, say, in Glasgow. I mean, I came to Glasgow in, what, 1990. Uh, and there were places that I had no knowledge of um, that had operated in the decades, the couple of decades before. So most of the information on the maps has actually come out of my own research. But I do get occasional emails um, or comments on the website recommending other places and spaces. And also there was a recent uh, post there by Willie, who was um, reflecting on his own experiences of coming out in Glasgow in the 1950s and 1960s. So I'm always very happy for people. That's, that's a wonderful post. Yeah. Oh, what was it? High kicks and low it's morals. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, so that was a great thing. I mean, I was really, really appreciative of, 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 of Willie getting in touch to share his story. Um, so if people want to do that, then by all means get in touch, mm. even if it's just to say, oh, you've missed something from Greenock uh, in the 1970s. Um, <laughs> that's great. It adds to the knowledge and, and kind of builds the, the momentum um, of the map. And I'll hold my hand up here and say, you know, because my research focus was gay and bisexual men, it has a very gay and bisexual mm. men leaning in the sense that most of the information yes. there yeah, is yeah. about that. And that's not because I decided yes. I don't want to include uh, lesbian, bi or trans experience. It was simply I didn't have the information. So if people have that kind of information, then, yeah, I'd be delighted to add, to add a more di- diverse dynamic um, to the maps as they stand. Sure, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is really interesting to see these maps. It's also interesting to contrast them, say, with the Glasgow Women's Library brought out, brought out a map, um, an actual guide, guided tour, um, which went through the city centre. And it, it was interesting looking at that because I was conscious, well, there's some places that are sort of missing off that. But of course, you've only got so much space when you're putting one of these leaflets together. So I can understand that. But it also made me laugh too because it had things like Sadie Frost in it, which hasn't existed for a while. And I'm thinking, oh, um, I painted the ceiling in Sadie Frost's. So I'm kind of, you know, that's how that's how it it disappears and it's part of your own life has disappeared. And that's, that's how kind of um, ephemeral some of these spaces are. Or, you know, Club X, first nightclub I ever went to doesn't exist anymore. So it's it's funny. It it does change really, really quickly. And that's just part part of what the scene is like. So moving on then, in in an article um, that you published in Glasgow Live in uh, February 2021, you said, it wasn't all oil and cigarettes. There are more voices that need to be heard. So how do you look for those stories and voices and is it easy to find queer stories in the city's archives? So you do rely mainly on oral history. Uh, I mean, it would be great, you know, to go into an archive and open a file uh, and, and a deluge of information pours out uh, about LGBT experience. But of course, that, that doesn't happen. It never happens like that. Um, you have to pick out small details from material and kind of broaden the parameters of your research. So you end up using a a whole variety of sources to try and find out um, more information about particular people, about particular places and spaces. Um, So often the the kind of gay, queer, LGBT dynamic of something is hidden under um, layers of different materials. Uh, Things have kind of changed in the past 10 to 15 years in the sense that, um, for example, the National Library and the National Records of Scotland have quite handy LGBT research guides, um, which didn't exist, you know, 10, 15 years ago, which are really helpful if if you're aiming to to try and explore LGBT history uh, and experience. 
Um, and other archives, I think, are beginning to to follow that uh, pathway. Um, it's come a long way since um, uh, the, the, the days gone past in the early 2000s, the mid-2000s, when I went into an archive, uh, which I won't mention, uh, and asked the archivist if they had any LGBT content. Uh, and the person I was speaking to was, was a little shocked uh, and a little horrified that I was asking that. Uh, so uh, oral histories are um, vitally important in that process as well. Um, we need more, I think, research that focuses on the diversity of LGBT uh, plus experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, research that's not focused on you know, white, middle-class, gay men. Um, Very much. I mean, it's really difficult, for example, to find a, a good um, Scottish lesbian by women history, um, not, to not to mention trans mm -hmm. histories as well. These are really difficult to get any information yes. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I also think one of the, one of the best ways to, to do this is by linking with community groups and heritage organizations as part of that process. Because there is this kind of obstacle mm -hmm. sometimes, I think, that people perceive academics to be set apart in some way from community groups or heritage organizations um, that we write for an elite audience. And uh, we're not interested in, in, in kind of broadening our research that way. So I do wish there was a better kind of cooperation between these different uh, you know, vitally important components in exploring histories, marginalised histories. Um, yeah, very, very much. You know, I think I think that's that's a that's a very good point. And I know people like Scottish Civic Trust have been doing a very similar exercise over the last couple of years. So, but I I think it's it's incredibly important, and it's something that I'm conscious that we have to do as an organisation. It's to be able to take those histories and present it to everybody in Glasgow so it's not just an, a, an exclusive audience it can't just be academic it's got to be for everybody because you know we're serving everybody yeah I mean absolutely um, I like to think that when I write I don't write terribly academic in the sense that uh, I think my material is reasonably accessible um, and I've done a fair bit in writing for different organizations and, uh, and different newspapers etc mm -hmm. um, but I think there's kind of disparateness about LGBT history research in Scotland. For example, if you were to ask me to name four other academics in Scotland that are examining this, I would really struggle to do that. And that, that's been the way it has been for the last 10, 15 years. Um, and it's great that we have organisations such as Our Story Scotland that are actively collecting and collating um, oral histories from the LGBT plus communities uh, across Scotland. Um, but still, mm -hmm. in terms of research, in terms of, of exploring the diversity of LGBT experience, you know, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, uh, you know, to, to bring that on par, yes. perhaps, with um, uh, gay bisexual men's history. Sure, absolutely. No, I mean, from, from personal experience, um, being an architect, you know, I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of out- uh, architects that I actually know and it's been like that for decades um, there's really not that many so there are uh, there's um, uh, architecture LGBT plus who were kind of based down in England and they are trying to set up with uh, it's Mark Cairns from New Practice is taking the lead on this at the moment they're trying to set up in the city just now so again it's all part of understanding that there is a broader community but it's relatively invisible um, except for a couple of days a year and it's teasing out and say actually we're here all the time you know so it's 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 yeah it's all part of that process so Okay, well, moving on then. So uh, what, what would you say are the most important iconic historical places and buildings linked to queer history? I mean, in, in your article, you talk about the White Hats gangs and um, the Broomy Law, and you also refer to the Knob, which is um, the monument to Admiral Nelson on Glasgow Green. So can you tell us a bit more about all of that and how that ties in with kind of gay histories? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually difficult to think of particular buildings um, that have some sort of resonance with LGBT experience. 
Um, for me, it's more about spaces and places. And I think that Nelson's Monument is a key example of that, because that was, if you like, a gay hotspot in the late 19th century right through to the mm. interwar period. Um, it features, mm -hmm. I think, centrally in, in numerous cases um, in the High Court and Sheriff Court throughout that period. The police went to significant um, extremes to stake it out. They were hiding in bushes for hours on end, waiting for some unfortunate <laughs> couple um, to engage in, in sexual behaviours. And it's interesting that if you were a heterosexual couple, and you were doing the similar type of thing. You generally were given a stern talking to and told to go home. They were only really interested in the gay stuff. Um, so that and and also the um, the rowing club. Um, I can't remember the official name of the rowing club there. That was also mm -hmm. another place um, that features quite prominently. Um, how, how interesting. It it's all under restoration at the moment. So they're, well, actually, there are two rowing clubs. So yes, yeah, it's an interesting yeah. history. Uh, and what too. makes it so important, I think, is because it was a monument in the sense that it was something that could be seen. It was something that could be accessed. It was a, mm -hmm. it was mm -hmm. a visible presence on the, on the riverside um, horizon and acted in a way like a beacon um, in the night hours. Um, and it was part of a a queer promenade, effectively, that stretched from uh, McAlpine Street uh, further along the Brumelow. It linked up with several of the theatres in the city yes. centre uh, and incorporated Glasgow Green uh, as well. And that's where the police um, kind of uh, focused much of their activity during this period. The police were well aware of, of what was going on, who was participating well, the, head, head, the headquarters is literally right next door, so it's it's, it's very handy because the central police station was just up at um, uh, St Andrew's Square. And and on, if it was a, a particularly slow week, the police knew where they could uh, up their arrest figures, um, which by popping along to to Glasgow Green. Um, and what this kind of suggests to to me is that places and spaces during this period extended their shape. Um, they extended the shape of themselves, they extended mm. the meaning um, to bring about uh, an LGBT dynamic to places that the rest of the population would be totally oblivious mm. um, to. Ab absolutely. Yep. Yes. Yeah, it's fa fascinating. And if it's, it's, there are so many histories I, and, and cities I can think of that kind of are similar to that. What's particularly fascinating about Glasgow, I suppose, is that I'm not sure that still happens anymore. I not certainly not on my map or anything, but I suspect that's something to do with you know what happened in Glasgow with the comprehensive development areas, the loss of industry, et cetera, et cetera, and the massive loss of population around Glasgow Green. You know, Glasgow Green would have been hemmed in with these very densely populated districts, and none of that's left now. So you whereas in the past, you know, all of those people in those densely populated areas would have needed that kind of outlet. It's much more dissipated nowadays, so it's it's probably completely changed. And again, when you when you look at the the Broomy Law in particular, this is the touch on urbanism. When you look at it now, it's um, what um, the, the 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 Danish um, urbanist um, Jan Gale would call a, a fifty mile a, mile an hour city. It's got all of these kind of buildings which don't have very many entrances on them. They get one huge big entrance, and it's all geared being you know passed at speed in the car. It's not geared to promenading, which is what you would have wanted back then. And when you look at what uh, historic photographs of what the area was actually like, it's much more like the Water of Leith than it is now, where it's much more of an expressway with these huge kind of quite anonymous corporate buildings on a completely different area. And that kind of Water of Leith environment would have been much more conducive with you know small cafes, all these outlets, places you could go to what you're talking about than it is now. So it just shows you how a city changing can destabilize things and get people to shift their activities somewhere else by the, the, the nature of what, you know, replaces the original. Um, yeah, very much so. When I, was, when I was, you know, plucking out the Brumelow, McAlpine Street, uh, you know, Clyde Street and these different areas, at the time when I was looking at the research uh, material, I was thinking to myself, 
that's a pretty risky area just to go wandering about. And then realizing that, you know, 100 years ago, this was mobbed. Mm. There were people, there was a throng of people here. So it was much more, Yes. you were much yeah, more yeah. able to be anonymous yep. and invisible when there are more people than it is now. Yeah. Uh, I did a, a radio documentary a couple of years ago, um, kind of briefly introducing the White Hats. And we actually went to McAlpine Street to where, um, so the White Hats had a base in McAlpine Street mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. they worked out of. Uh, William Payton was the leader of the White Hats and his mother Agnes ran mm -hmm. this fish restaurant. So we went there to film, oh, well, not to record the, this uh, documentary. And of course, there's nothing there. It's just a, a wasteland of Calpine Street. Yes. But we did manage to find the cobbles that formed the, the, the base of the back court of a 224 Brumelow. Uh, which linked linked into the house in McAlpine Street. So despite the fact that there was nothing there, I still felt some sort of connection with the past in the sense that, you know, standing on the cobbles that the White Hats would have, you know, clicked along in their in their kitten heels. Yeah. <laughs> would have stood on as well. Yeah, it's, uh, this again, this is what fascinates me about Glasgow. I got um, uh, roped in at the very last minute to do a walking tour for the BBC's Coast programme. This was a, a while back. And, um, you know, having been introduced to Neil Oliver, I then kind of got, you know, here's your party, off you go. And, <laughs> oh my God, it was such a difficult tour to do because there was nothing left. And you were having to describe all of these buildings and spaces and activity and hope that people could imagine it. And that was a real tough gig. And it wasn't until we eventually got to the Clydeport building that, and it's when you do a walking tour, you can you can tell whether people are interested or not because you just have to look at the whites of their eyes. And because um, if they start glazing over, you have lost your audience. And uh, it wasn't until we got to the Clydeport that you all suddenly sprung back up into life again because I was really having to kind of work it to tell the story of something that they just couldn't see for themselves. A really difficult thing to do. So, but again, it's just, it's uh, that's the point. That city has disappeared. It has. It was much easier doing it on the radio, of course, when you, the viewers couldn't see that there was nothing there. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's part of the gig on radio. You get, you've got to describe it. So, yeah, um, yeah because yeah, it was it was fun. But Yeah, I mean, so McAlpine Street, Brumelow, that part's gone. Um, the other place that, that the uh, White Hats congregated or met was in uh, Stob Cross Street, I think. Of course, that part's gone as well. Um, yeah, fun fundamentally changed. Yeah, I saw all this kind of rush for post-war reconstruction and redevelopment has obliterated, you know, many of the, the buildings that that we that I could associate um, with LGBT history, and 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 it's a case of trying to not see that as a significant loss in terms of the story. The story still exists. The people still existed. That building and these buildings still existed. Um, and it's trying to, you know, encourage the same level of excitement that I get when I read about it uh, in other people. Uh, yes. And, and assuring them that because the building isn't there anymore, does not devalue or take anything away from the story. Although it would be much better if, if it was there. And if, if, anyone, if anyone has a photograph of the corner of Brumelow and McAlpine Street when there were buildings there, I'd be very grateful because... Um, nobody seems to have a, a photograph of that venue. Um, so I would still like to see uh, it. I wonder whether our pa patron, uh, John, John Hume, Professor John Hume, might well do. He was in the 1960s and kind of early 70s, he was photographing everything around there. He's, uh, he's kind of Scotland's top expert on kind of industrial architecture and archaeology. And he just photographed everything. So he's got it all and he, he's given it all to Historic Environment Scotland. So, but there there are occasional nuggets of gold you can find in his his photographs, and when you see them, it all of a sudden it makes sense again because you appreciate what was once there and what the city was like. But yeah, all very sadly swept away. So, okay, turn, going back to the legal side of things, Scotland didn't decriminalise gay sex between consenting men until 1980, obviously on the back of what happened with Adair, um, and for this reason. Queer stories, and this is something that depressed me, um, are often linked with crime. And very often the only traces we can find are in criminal archives. So what would you say is the best way to interpret and highlight these stories in the places they're linked to? Um, I, you know, I think it is. I mean, it is a, a bit depressing. It certainly is when, 
you know, you're accessing people's stories through uh, trial and recognition records uh, and mm, medical mm-hmm. reports and such like that these men had to under uh, had to go through uh, once they were arrested and a very depersonalizing and dehumanizing process that's catalogued and recognition yeah. records. Yes. Um, you, you were extremely limited in that sense. Um, these are the records that we need to use. Um, but a criminal record and a person's identity, you know, from whenever, 1878, 1903, whatever, gives us a link to a person. Uh, and that person's story can then be explored in more detail. Um, so it's it's linking people to poor law records to um, census um, enumerators reports and finding out more mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. them um, and building a, another aspect of that person's identity and character, you know, that slightly shifts it away from the criminal realm uh, into the kind of human realm. Yeah. Um, yes. So for these older records, uh, for these older uh, cases, for, for these older experiences, you know, sometimes we just have to accept the records that we have are the only records that we will ever have. Um, for the slightly later periods, then you know, oral history is is a fantastic tool that can be used um, to to explore people's perceptions. Of course, a person reflecting on something that occurred fifty years ago might not remember things as accurately um, as as if you were taking factual notes contemporaneously. But that tells us a lot about what has happened to that person in their life too. Um, hmm. So, you know, it's about, explore, it's about exploring the opportunities that we do have, however limited, um, to build more about a person and their identity uh, and the humanity of their experience and, and how they've interpreted their experiences. We could also do things like if we have a place, a space that we can identify, like 224 Brumelow, it's about finding out who owned 224 Brumelow, who rented 224 Brumelow, how long did they rent 224 Brumelow, what does that tell us about what was happening mm-hmm. in the Brumelow at that time? So, I mean, that's what I've done with the White Hats in the, in the midst of writing the book at the moment. And when a few months ago I laid it all on a table, everything that I had. You know about these individuals. I was thinking, "Oh my God, how am I going to be able to write a book here?" But then you start <laughs> unpicking things, and at the moment, I'm writing about male impersonators on the stage in 1920s, 1930s Glasgow, and there's a reason for that, right? Fascinating, because it links to the names that these men use professionally. So you suddenly learn that uh, William Payton or Thomas Hartness or whomever must have gone to the Empire or the Panopticon or wherever and watched these performers on that stage. And there immediately, yeah, you have a human connection, uh, their likes and dislikes. So one little nugget of information, even if it is from a criminal record, can lead you down a path that takes you to far more interesting and kind of human places. Yeah, very much. I mean, what came what came out of that for me, which kind of I, I thought was really interesting, was that the um you know the mother and the son were clearly exploiting these people who are from a very marginalized group and you can totally understand why people were marginalized i mean you know they want they wanted to express a, a, a core inner part of their being but the only way they could do that was through an activity that had been criminalized since you know 15th century onwards and you know pe- people being at risk of either death or being you know transported to australia or you know all of these things, inevitably, they're all going to be marginalised and therefore that's going to make them poor because they're outside of the mainstream of society. And it's how you get your way back into that. So it's always going to be marginalised. It's, it's, it's really fascinating. And, and again, that ties in with um, you know, Adair and what he was doing because he wanted to silence those voices and he didn't want them to, to be brought out. Um, because he had a very different idea of what um, what he wanted Scottish society to be, and in actual fact, it didn't didn't reflect that much much broader church that it actually is. I mean, Adair is a classic example of of kind of uh, mendacity and mm. uh, and all of these things. You know, as a procurator fiscal, he prosecuted many men um, for for sex uh, with another man during the the you know the first quarter of the twentieth century. 
So for him to boldly state, you know, that this is not a problem in Scotland that we should be discussing, mm. um, it is is just it's just hypocrisy of the highest level. Totally. I mean, he was he was he was in constant communication with people like William Merrilies in Edinburgh. Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. Uh, who was waging war on homosexuality in the 20s and 30s. So they knew exactly yep. what the situation was in terms of the number of people um, that were being uh, um, uh, criminalised. Uh, and that's only a reflection of a small percentage, percentage of the population, the LGBT population at that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So for them to, you know, to maraud through the 50s with blinkers on, um, you know, it just reflects something very peculiar about Scotland in the fifties and sixties, yeah, um, and only only tells part of the story because Adair, you know, isn't the reason that Scotland is different. There is a much more complex picture, but it's yet it's people like James Adair that get all the attention, and I think part partially it's because he was an attention seeker. Yeah, yes, yeah. I suspect you're probably right. It's interesting. What William Merrilies, when I was looking at this. Um, I actually come from a police family, kind of on both sides. And my grandfather on my mother's side was, he was in Edinburgh and his beat was from the, uh, there's a very beautiful um, Georgian police station at the bottom of Leithwalk and his beat was all the way up Leithwalk and on Princes Street. He was basically in charge of that whole stretch. He must have known William Merrilies. And it was funny because when I eventually came out to my parents, in kind of the mid nineties, they were like, don't you tell your grandfather, he won't accept it. And looking back on that, what William Merrilies was like, you're thinking, this is the culture he was immersed in. No wonder he wouldn't accept it. He would find that really difficult to tolerate and he wouldn't be able not to say something. And I really loved my grandfather and not being able to say something like that to him was, you know, to, to conceal that was, was really difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at Wally Merrilies, um, uh, I remember speaking to someone who told me a story. Wally Merrilies was, you know, effectively came to, you know, become a police officer because of his heroics in at Leith mm. Harbour. On numerous mm. occasions, he dived into the water to save a drowning boy <laughs> or a drowning right. man. I think it was 22 right. times he did this. Right. And the story I heard was that some uh, Ed- Leith wag said, uh, yeah, he pushed half of them in. <laughs> so <laughs> probably uh, but the thing is no. William Merrilies has been glorified he, even like yep. his own cartoon strip William Merrilies became this icon of, of, of respectable Scottish policing um, mm. to the extent that you know when people read about his war and homosexuality there, there must be some people that think well he must have been right uh, mm. he must have mm. been doing the right thing because William Merrilies was a fantastic police officer but, yeah, you know. yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And when you see all that kind of in the 1960s on the back of what Adair has been doing with the Wolfenden Commission and then how he presents it in the press in the 1960s, you can understand why you know there's so much resistance and it's so slow. And it's 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 really fascinating because exactly the same kind of pattern reemerges when Section 28 in the Scottish Parliament decides to tackle Section 28. And you get the whole kind of thing re-emerging again. And, um, you know, we can't have this. It's going to, you know, spoil our children, not on. And nobody actually really explains the whole situation properly in a, in a human way. And, you know, with any kind of sensitivity or understanding. It's quite depressing. Yeah, it is. And it's the same narrative that keeps on popping up. Yeah. It, it's so predictable. You can read it in the 30s. Um, you can read it in the German sexologist's work. You can read it in the 50s, you can read it in the 70s, and you can read it in the 80s, mm. and you can even read it today. It's the same kind of narrative. Uh, yeah, right. very, very, very much. Yes, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, going back to what we we're discussing with marginalized minorities and history, and, you know, queer history, a lot of it is ephemeral, has been erased, or not documented properly. So, what can we do to include these kind of marginalized histories? in archives and collective social memory nowadays? Uh, It's about embedding it within Scottish history. It's it's about not seeing it as LGBT history um, that that needs to be separated and focused on in a Mm. different way. Mm -hmm. And it kind of leads on to the issue of um, um, LGBT history months and things like that, which are very positive in Mm -hmm. a sense. 
But it means that once that month is over, you can put it back in its box and say, well, I've, we've done that. We've supported Pride. We sponsored a float at Pride. Uh, we're showing our inclusivity and progressiveness. Yeah. But it only lasts for that month. Yes. And it's about, it's about somehow embedding that within history. I mean, I don't know how many social and cultural history courses there are at universities and colleges across Scotland, but I wonder how, how many of those social and cultural history courses include LGBT history and experience. Very few, I would imagine. I would imagine. I mean, given, given what you said about the, the academics, you can count on one hand. Well, it, well quite. I mean, I do, I do a sexualities course in economic and social history at Glasgow. Um, and I hope this doesn't sound as if I'm blowing mm-hmm. one trumpet, but uh, mm-hmm. few of the students have said to me, that's the first time in two or three not, years not studying uh, history at university that we've encountered anything that, that engages with LGBT experience. And I think that, that's part of the problem, is that even now, in 2021, mm-hmm. um, it's somehow mm-hmm. being seen as a separate issue. Um, we can lump it with, with, with gender and sexuality studies, uh, where do we fit LGBT history and experience within the curriculum? Mm. Um, mm. And that, I think that speaks to the, you know, the wider issue uh, about how LGBT experience is still, in some senses, marginalised, as uh, and no one really knows what what to do with it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very, very much. Yeah, I mean, I was think, thinking of it early when um, I realised that um, where the, the the gay uh, Glasgow's gay centre. Um, had been at 534 Hill Street. That's actually it's an A-listed building um, by Sir John James Burnett, the Albany Chambers. Incredibly grand building. You got Quinton Crisp visiting that centre. You know, all, all these kind of famous people visit Tom Robinson, all, all, all kind of visit it. And yeah, there's nothing there that tells you any of this. There's no kind of interpretation and that kind of depresses me a wee bit as well that we, we could do and I, I feel this anyway about Glasgow not just with LGBT um, plus histories but with all kind of histories we don't tell our story very well and it's some, something that, that we need to do better um, and it's about you know making queer history relevant and and you know and, and, and emphasizing that this is important too and, and do, do you think that Glasgow could do better in this regard? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you can walk around Glasgow and not appreciate that there is an LGBT history in, in, in the city. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a hangover from this kind of industrial Glasgow, machismo, hard men, Possibly. Uh, broken bodies type ideology exists around the city. Um, it's, it's only just recently that, that Glasgow's kind of engaged with its mm. slavery history. Um, which has been, you know, the elephant in the room, you know, for 200 years, in effect, in Glasgow. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Glasgow can do so much more. Um, it's about how we actually do that, that, that that's probably the main issue. Um, you know, if, if I don't know if students at secondary school are being taught about LGBT culture and history. Um, I think it probably comes from people's demand to see and hear more about uh, the city's LGBT history than such, um, you know, um, programmes. The Thai campaign have been doing that in Scotland, but they seem to be kind of, they're coming for a lot of flack at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, some of the, the outright homophobia, I think that, the, that they've experienced on Twitter and other social media platforms has been scary. Yeah, it's been quite depressing. Um, uh, but, you know, is that, so, is that a social media thing? Or does it reflect True. Uh, popular opinion uh, in the real world? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still horrific to experience um, whatever uh, percentage of the population it, it might represent. Yeah, absolutely. I just think I think what 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 they do. You know, uh, when I was growing up, there was there were no kind of positive um, role models to kind of really look at, and you know, you had this deep ingrained sense of shame as a consequence. Um, which you know, totally defined you as a person when you're growing up as a teenager and trying to figure out how, how to move away with that. I, I, I would have been so grateful to have something like that at the time. And I, I really do wish them luck. I think it's so important. Yeah, I mean, I've got similar experience. I grew up in the 70s and 80s in a um, rural part of Scotland where 
you know, the word gay wasn't even mentioned very often, let alone anything positive about it. Hmm. Um, so in some senses, we've come a lot way, come a long way in forty years um, since decriminalisation, but yes, in some regards, not that far. Yeah, yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm acutely conscious of that, and it's funny because you begin to realise that you know we are quite privileged in the West, but there are other parts of the world that don't have that at all. So um, I suppose that kind of links us to where we're going with kind of the last question. And, um, you know, and it's, it's to do with um, you know, LGBTQ kind of um, presence and relationship with the built heritage. And, and how do you tease that out when it is so ephemeral? It's, it's, it's really not easy, but any suggestions? Um. I think it's it's about having the right kind of connections between different organisations, between different people, um, to enable that that history to be teased out. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm you know I'm fascinated by space, um, especially urban space, and how that has uh, evolved over a period. Uh, and I think that you know when you when you go to different places, mm. um, there's always a, a queer or LGBT dynamic to it. Um, I was walking through the necropolis recently and I began to think about how many of these thousands of people had a story that is now lost to history entirely. Um, and that kind of depressed me um, to, to, at, at that point. Uh, so I think it's about, you know, you know, finding some sort of way of connecting existing oral histories, for example, our story Scotland, with the built environment, yeah. with yes. how... How urban, uh, you know, metropoles develop. Uh, how LGBT people engage with space and place over time. Uh, has that changed? You know, it's it's uh, the, the thing I was doing with the Bennett's building. I entitled it uh, "Queering." I think "Queering," "Queering the Architecture of Glasgow," "Queering the Buildings of Glasgow." And I was thinking about how many buildings in Glasgow have some sort of LGBT plus historical dynamic or history to them. SMG, for example, were moving all around during that period. And, of course, they had the, the club, as they called it, in Queen's Crescent. Um, so, you know, there's, there are so many buildings, I think, in Glasgow that could have a, a queer or LGBT plus historical dynamic. And it's about teasing that out um, so that it's not all focused on, you know, Nelson's Monument or, um, you know, the police court there, uh, that uh, there are kind of human dimensions to it. Mm, um, mm. So it's about, you know, plotting the queer history mm. of Glasgow um, and, you know, teasing out these yes. these LGBT stories, these histories that, that are going to get lost completely unless people do something about them. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And maybe that is where you know, the, the maps, querying the map, maybe that's the way to go because, you know, you can still locate these various stories where they were in the city, but not necessarily, you can locate it on the map, just not necessarily in the same place anymore because the buildings disappeared. Um, maybe, maybe that's one way to do it. So, and then finally, turn to buildings itself. You know, what, what's your favourite building in Glasgow? And what would it tell you if it's Falls Good Talk? Uh, you know, that's a difficult one for me because uh, my favourite buildings in Glasgow do not exist anymore. Um, oh, go on then. You know, it, it, it is, you know, 224 Broomalaw. It is whatever number it is, uh, Stop Cross Street. Um, it's it's the buildings that tell some sort of story. There is uh, the building, I think it's, uh, I can't remember now, in Garnet Hill, um, that the Galloway family owned in the 1920s, that they drilled a peephole through the wall to spy on their their, their, their guest that was staying there because they suspected he was a homosexual and went to the police with their evidence. It's these buildings, <laughs> I think, that mean so, so much more to me. Um, also, and I know I'm taking it back to the crime angle, mm-hmm. but, you know, the Glasgow Central uh, Police Court uh, and Police Station. Yes. F- for me, it's a building that I've never been in. I tried to get in to do the, my talk uh, for Doors Open Day in right. it. I've, I've, uh, I've been in it. And to me, it's about, you know, the, there are so many men who pass through that building mm. um, whose stories um, could tell us something, uh, could tell us about their experience, how that damaged or destroyed their lives. Um, because so many more men got £5 fines 
or £15 fines than were ever sent to prison. So, you know, the, it's, these kind of buildings, they must, they must have so many stories to tell. Um, so that's a building. Ab- ab- absolutely, yeah. That fascinates it's, it's fascinating, that one. It, it, it is an intriguing building. It's, it, a developer has it at the moment and is a, a, a allegedly going to be turning it into um, some res- residential with a mix of kind of other accommodation in it. But having been around it, it's actually going to be a really intriguing building to adapt because the front part of it that sits on kind of look, looking towards um, St. Andrew's Square, which is notionally the posh part of it, is actually not in a really good way at all because... Behind that facade, it's all kind of um, plaster and timber flooring, and the roof is leaking like a sieve, and so it's dry. It's riddled with dry rot, and you have to be really careful where you step. And so the actual courtroom itself, which is a magnificent space, is pretty ropey. And yet, when you go beyond the courtyard to the kind of the back of the whole complex, that's where all the cells are, and the cell block is in fantastic condition because it was all concrete construction. And so it's actually in really good nick, but there's something about it that's ever so slightly terrifying. It would make a fantastic set for a horror film. (laughs) And I know they have used it for for filming inside, Um, but it's what would you do with those cells and location? It's not really the kind of thing that lends itself to a residential building, whereas the front part might. So I think that's going to be a wee bit of a challenge for them. Yeah. But um, very much an, an intriguing building. So um, thank you very much, Jeff. This has been a, a very, a very interesting, at times slightly depressing conversation. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, really, really fascinating. And um, hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Yeah. So and you know, to to people who are who are listening in, if you've enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and share, and don't forget to follow the hashtag um, of Glasgow Schools Could Talk. Thank you very much. The following message was submitted by a member of the public. If you want to leave a message about your opinions, memories and thoughts about Glasgow's historic built environment, have a look at our website to find out how. We know that the pool and Turkish suite at Kovanil Bats acted as a safe space for gay men to meet and socialise when other options were close to them. This was also a very mixed space with men from the local Jewish and Muslim communities using the space at the same time. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. This podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnex.